this understanding that we are the tabernacle of God. That's, that's fundamental to new covenant revelation. And part of, part of what I'm locked in on is you can be in the new covenant but live as if you're in the old. And if you do that, that's the most tragic of all things because a great price was paid for you to live. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. He, he died at, uh, at great cost, at great price. Blood was shed so that you could be free. And when we live in the full benefit of the new covenant, but only tasting the heaven-bound portion, the thing that gets us to heaven, then there's a lot of bondage we still practice that we aren't meant to. So, in the New Covenant, we read that um, when Jesus came, John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And what it's saying there, when it talks about He dwelt among us, the Word is actually tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. And later, Paul and Peter add language to this. They say, don't you know that you're the temple of the living God? You're the, we're living stones together in a corporate temple, but each one of us is a temple. And so everything we see in the tabernacle is establishing, the tabernacle of Moses serves three purposes. One, to help us understand the tripartite, uh, construction of humanity, the outer court, the flesh, the inner court, the soul, and the holy of holies, our spirit. That's how we're made in the image of God. God is three in one, we're three in one, body, soul, spirit, the tabernacle reflects that. Wrapped in skin with the covenant, uh, uh, the, the presence of his uh, uh, love and power forming over the mercy seat when the requirement of the law is satisfied by being brought under the blood, and his presence manifests there, that's the secret place, the holy of holies, and that's wrapped in skin to tell you that's you. And so later on in the, in, in the revelation that Paul brings and uh, uh, Peter and others, they use that language because it's a story told out over hundreds of years that was so near and dear to them, they could have their own aha moment and go, oh, so this is that. And hopefully, uh, over these last two or three days, we're having some this-is-that moments. So, the tabernacle of Moses was describing the threefold construction of a, of a human being. Let me say this. Oh, I do this a lot, and it costs me time, but it's... Here we go. Uh, I don't understand... And there are many people of very sincere and deep convictions, great scholars on all sides of these issues. The culmination of time is a mystery beyond anyone's fathoming. There's things we're meant to understand. There's things that are going to be mysteries that God will disclose in time to fullness. But here's what I don't understand. 
God makes a man in his image. There's a great divorce that happens where the man's spirit essentially uh, is divorced from God's presence, puts in motion a great rescue and restoration plan where God is going to bring man back to his original stature and better. Uh, an improved version. We aren't actually trying to get back to the garden, folks. It, it's, it's better. It's better where we're going, what we're coming into. And, and so along the way, God's trying to show how this happens. And so he reveals this tabernacle thing to Moses so that people can begin to glimpse what it takes to have the price of sin paid for and a, a process of sanctification that leads to fellowship, unbroken fellowship. And, and uh, so just to get that out of the way, that's the other two couple things on the tabernacle of Moses. It's the tripartite construction of humanity. It is the, uh, the process of sanctification, moving from outer court to inner court. And it is the reality that he wants us to be the house where his presence dwells. That's what that's telling us. And there's a lot of things that could be added to that. But that happens, and it leads to a point where Solomon dedicates a temple, and the glory of God fell, which was the tabernacle in stone, in permanence, marking Israel as the people of God. Presence of God so strong, the priests couldn't even stand to minister because the glory was so potent and powerful, it is the supreme realization in human terms of God's presence on earth. And at that time, Solomon says, God, this isn't what you really want. If you look at the dedication of the temple, Solomon says, we can't possibly build a house for you. A stone structure, a stone temple... You're coming to dwell among us because you're trying to tell us something, but this isn't really what you want. That's what Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple. Wow, thank you for coming and dwelling among us. This is amazing. It was glorious and extravagant, but even in this amazing moment, I know this isn't your ultimate purpose. And we move through history and get to the end of the book, and we somehow think that what God wants is a literal temple in Jerusalem. I may be stepping on some toes here. Because I, everyone say A. Everyone say men. Thank you very much. That, that's code word for keep preaching. So, <laughs> we get, <laughs> we get to the end of the book and we think somehow God has changed his mind, rewritten history, and says, you know what I really want is that stone building. Thank you very much. I'd really like to get that thing. There may be a building in Jerusalem, but you're the temple. So... Pulled that one off, didn't I? <laughs> so now Joshua is bringing the tabernacle of Moses into the promised land. And uh, it's at Shiloh in Samaria for about three or 400 years. And I'm going to move through this pretty quick. But uh, 
the, the, the normal routine is happening. All the sacrifices, the Levitical priesthood, all the stuff is happening. But somewhere along the line, three, four hundred years down the line, Canada and America haven't even existed 400 years, right? I mean, that's a long time. You think about the entirety of the North American continent's history, and that's just one little blip in the radar where the tabernacle was at Shiloh with this, uh, the, the ongoing ritual sacrifices and everything. You can imagine there's some maybe deterioration in the understanding of things over that period of time. And it gets down to the time of Eli, who's the second to last judge of Israel. And the Israelites decide to take the ark into battle because they've kind of gotten to the point where the ark isn't about the reverent, astonishing presence of God. It's like the magic talisman. That if they take it into battle, they're going to win. And so it's, it's little more than magic and incantations at this point. It is, we've got a battle, we need to win. Okay, let's drag God along so that we can beat our enemies. Okay, that's good. And, and uh, so clearly, this isn't what God really had in mind. And the ark falls uh, into the hands of the Philistines during this time. God says, I'm, I'm not going to be your, your, your magic um, slot machine. And so they're neglecting the purpose and the presence and the delight of, of God and, and what the tabernacle is speaking of. And the Philistines capture the ark. Eli, when he hears about it, he falls over and dies. His daughter-in-law gives birth to a son, and she names the son Ichabod because her husband has just died. Her father, uh, uh, the, the sons of Eli, were wicked, and that was one of those sons was her husband. He's died, killed. Uh, Eli fell over and died, and the Philistines have the ark. And right then she gives birth and she names it Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And this begins a cycle in Israel's history where the ark is uh, the ark of the covenant is no longer in the tabernacle in the in the uh, safekeeping of the covenant nation. It's in the Gentile nations wandering around five cities of the Philistines over the course of uh, several months. But this isn't good for the Philistines. They bring it, uh, I don't remember which city, I think it was Ashkelon, uh, they bring it into the temple of their god Dagon because uh, whenever you would conquer an enemy in those days, you would take the token of their god and bring it as a sacrifice to your God to demonstrate the triumph of your God over their God, over your defeated foes. Now remember, if you were here, how many of you were here this morning so I don't repeat it too much? If you were here this morning, you know that when God scattered the nations at Babel, He allotted to all the, the, the nations that were not a part of Abraham's seed, He basically said, all the rebel angels, the principalities and powers, you can take those guys. You belong to each other. You're all rebellious. You're rebellious in heaven. You're rebellious on earth. You're fit for each other. I'm going to start over with this guy, Abram. And, and the family of faith and the nation of faith is formed, but the battles were continuing through that time, God against God. Now, there's only one true God, 
But it is a mistake to say there are no other gods. They're all just lesser created beings that rebelled and have assumed a deity status in relation to those nations. That's why you can look through history and you can find uh, many regions uh, across all the regions of the earth, they can name their gods. That, we say that's myth. No, it's not. It's what the Bible describes happened at Babel, Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, Deuteronomy 4, 19. God set this up so that he could have a great conflict to demonstrate he alone is God and he'll work with the family of faith until all the earth is covered in the glory of God, working through his people to reestablish his supremacy. And so Paul later on talks about the battle of principalities and powers. He talks about warfare in high places. We see it in Daniel with the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. You can go to Scandinavia, they'll talk to you about Thor and Odin. You can go to South America, and Aztec culture will talk to you about Quetzalcoatl. You can go to... Uh, uh, China and talk about the five jade emperors. You can go to uh, 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 India and talk about uh, Vishnu and a hundred million gods. You can go into the Canaanite regions and you can talk about Ishtar and Baal and Egypt and, and uh, Ra and all the different nations, they have their gods. And that's not a mythological framework it was a divine judgment coming out of the Tower of Babel. Now that's a lot that I would need to unpack at a different time. This is my way of saying invite me back. <laughs> uh, what was I doing? Oh, so anyway, the Philistines, they're in triumphant mode. We've captured the God of the Israelites, Yahweh. We're bringing him to our God, Dagon. In the morning, Dagon's on his face before the ark. Wasn't good for the Philistines. So they keep passing it off city to city. Like, hey, you want the victory trophy, guys? Things are going great here in Ashkelon. Gath, we don't want you to be left out. We'll let you have this for a while. They're passing it off city to city, and every, all the Philistine cities, they're getting wrecked. It's no good. They finally say, this, isn't, this doesn't feel like a victory somehow. Not sure this is what we had in mind. And so they give the ark back. The last judgment was either cancer or hemorrhoids. We aren't sure. But the way they decided to get out of this was, we're going to make gold tokens of our tumors and offer that to the God of Israel and hope that he accepts our we're sorry. I mean, can you imagine? The whole city's plagued with hemorrhoids. <laughs> like, this doesn't feel like a victory. It feels itchy and hot. And, and so let's, let's acknowledge this was a bad idea. Let's make uh, tokens of our itchy hotness. Let's sacrifice some animals, dump this thing, and call it a day. So they returned the ark to Israel on an ox cart with these symbolic gifts. 
And it finally arrives eight miles west of Jerusalem at a town called Kiriath Jerim in the house of a man named Abinadab. And about 70 years pass. About 10 more under the judges. Uh, actually, 20 years, sorry, under Samuel, 40 years under Saul, and about 10 years into David's reign. And that picks us up where I wanted us to read. That brings you up to date. Now David comes along, and Psalm 132, we'll look at it in a minute. He says, I'm not going to give sleep to my eyes, nor slumber to my eyelids, till I get the ark back before the Lord. Seventy years, the ark is in one location, and the tabernacle of Moses is still at Gibeon. Actually, it started in Shiloh. I should make those connections. It started at Shiloh, moved to Nob, eventually found its way to Gibeon. The point is, for seven decades, now the ark is independent of what started at Shiloh for three or four hundred years. Then when the ark moved and went into the hands of the Philistines, over those 70 years, the tabernacle of Moses that was at Shiloh was moved to a couple of other locations it finally lands at a place called Gibeon, from Shiloh to Nob to Gibeon. But in that period of time, the ark isn't there, which begs the question, what are they sacrificing the bulls to achieve? Because the sacrifices never stopped. So the presence of God, God is gone out of the Mosaic system, the ritual structured religious system that was designed through a proper performance to grant access to bring the blood that was sacrificed at the altar in the outer court into the mercy seat to sprinkle it on the mercy seat on the day of atonement so that the nation could be forgiven and for 70 years the ark hasn't even been there but the sacrifices have continued. So chapter 6, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And he arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. This is when he's going to the area where it finally landed in the house of Abinadab and had been there for 70 years. 20 under Samuel, 40 under Saul, and 10 under in the time of David's reign. Now, what happened that caused the kingdom to go from David, from Saul to David? Anyone remember? What? Disobedience. What kind? He, he didn't follow instruction and ended up offering sacrifices like a priest. He was told to wait for Samuel to get there to do the sacrifices, and instead he as a king offered sacrifices. And Samuel showed up and said, why did you do that? The kingdom's taken from you this day and it'll be given to another more deserving than you. There's actually a little bit more to it, but I'll leave that there for now. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. Ahio went on before the ark. 
David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. This is a party, right? After 70 years, the most significant holy relic in the nation, that which not only symbolized but enshrined the presence of God, is being brought back. They're celebrating, they're happy, this is glorious. I want you to look for what's wrong. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark, took hold of it, for the ox had stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had uh, done this. Uh, says, uh, how can the ark of the Lord come to me in Jerusalem? He's basically saying, if, if God killed Uzzah, I can't risk bringing it into a populated area. I don't know what he's going to do. So he wasn't willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but he left it in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Say Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Say the Lord blessed Obed-Edom. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the horn. You guys know this story, right? The famous recovery of the ark. Tell me the troubling verse. Now no one's going to be going to risk it. Okay, there's a lot of troubling verses here. Obviously, seems like a good thing. Seems like God's a little overreacting. Uzzah's just trying to help. God strikes him down. I'm not troubled by that. I'm troubled that David was wearing the linen ephod and wasn't struck down. Because David's of the tribe of Judah and a linen ephod is a priestly article that a Levite wears. So David is dancing before all his might. We know the dancing, the celebration's not the issue. They were dancing and celebrating before Uzzah touched the ark and was struck down. They're dancing later. Dancing's not the issue. Celebrating's not the issue. Touching the ark, yeah, that's a no-no. Brought in an ox cart, that's a no-no. David wearing a linen ephod. Should have been a no-no. And it actually goes on. If you keep reading, you'll see they brought the ark, verse 17, and set it in its place inside a tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Here again, what? Saul just had a kingdom stripped from him and handed to David for offenses along this line. He hadn't followed through in complete obedience and part of that had been as a king he offered sacrifices and only the priests are supposed to offer sacrifices. Now David's dressed like a priest and offering sacrifices. Furthermore, he brings the ark into this little ramshackle tent that has none of the constructed elements of the tent it belongs in. The tent of Moses had to be shrouded in stages... And the last stage was a, an altar of incense that was designed to produce enough smoke 
that when the priest, the high priest entered in once a year, having gone through an intense ritualistic cleansing, carrying the blood of the red heifer, that the smoke would fill the Holy of Holies so densely that he wouldn't actually be able to see too clearly because he might be struck dead. So there's a veil, there's smoke, there's blood, and there's multiple stages in this construction that are required for the ark of the Lord. And this was a serious thing. Aaron's sons died because they violated this. David brings back an ark, dresses like a priest, sacrifices like a priest, and sticks it in a little open tent where anyone can see it. Gibeon's still there. The ark is still there. Why didn't he take it to Gibeon? God's telling us something. Great question to begin with is why would God allow his presence to be lost to the nation no matter what? Now this is where there's some real subjective elements and there's actually layers of truth to be applied here. But if you think about it, God has made this extraordinary covenant with Abraham. These are his people and yet he has allowed the ark of his presence to be overtaken by the enemy. I think there's a lesson to be learned on a number of levels. Not only sloppiness in the presence of the Lord and, and other things that could make a lot of sense. But really, the law can never sustain the presence of God. It will get lost in the process. I think more importantly, God permitted the loss of the ark and the separation from the tabernacle of Moses to put in motion a revelation sequence for David that led to some of the decisions he made. If everything had stayed the same, there would have been no triggers to ask why. It's one of the things I appreciate about the leaders here, Kevin, Barry, Tony, I'm hearing them ask these questions. You know, why? We read the word and we take for granted without asking why and we miss opportunities to go deeper. I believe David was asking a lot of whys. And I think it might have started, we were talking about this a little bit. Tony brought it up earlier at lunch. Psalm one, is it Psalm 139? It's not Psalm 139. I can't remember what psalm. But David says something, no, it's Psalm 51. He says something interesting. He says, in sin my mother conceived me. Now I'm just going to pull two or three pieces together that are maybe part. I'm suggesting these may be part. I can't prove it. I'm finding these puzzle pieces and I'm just kind of reaching out here and reaching out here. And I'm pulling them in and saying, this kind of starts to form a picture. You have to judge for yourself. I'm not even saying I'm 100% convinced. But David said something interesting. He said, in sin my mother conceived me. In the womb. And 
The classic uh, theological interpretation of that is original sin. I actually believe that is maybe the most important thing David was saying. But there's this interesting dynamic where when Samuel shows up to Jesse's house, now I want you to think about this. This is the most impressive prophet in Israel's history. It says not one word of his mouth fell to the ground. Everything Samuel said was bullseye. And he shows up to the house of Jesse and says, bring all your sons to me. And Jesse brings all but one. Now you can say, well, he's out in the back 40, but if I have the prophet of God, not one of his words has ever dropped to the ground, he says, bring all your sons, I'm going to get all my sons. I'm going to say, hold on, some of them are around here in the house, but it's going to take me a couple hours to go get the other, unless the other was illegitimate. Which at that time would have not rendered him as a son, so Jesse did what the prophet asked and brought all the other sons. And Saul looks and says, no, 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 there's another. This may be what David was referring to, that he was born illegitimately. And maybe the actions of Samuel are confirming that. So it's true about original sin regardless, but the problem with this is this would have set up in the right person at the right time, and I believe David was the right person at the right time, it may be why he was appointed. Not only was he the youngest, but those were the kind of jobs that were given if you didn't have full status. So now you have a, a little orphan boy, essentially, out in the back 40 with his harp, and he's learning how to be fathered, singing love songs to a God he can't see, but he's heard the stories of this God. He's captivated with this God. He's shepherding and he's becoming a shepherd and he's learning and being discipled out of a posture of worship and surrender even though illegitimate, he is being fashioned in his temperament and mentality and identity from God himself and yet he is mindful that according to the law of Moses, he has no place in the sanctuary of Moses. So if this is true, and again, it's a big capital if, he's watching his whole family get to participate in the traditions and rituals that surrounded the sacrificial system of Moses to be part of that. You had to be a legitimate son of Israel. You had to be a legitimate son of your mother and father. And if you weren't a legitimate son, you were outside of that. Now just imagine growing up with that ache and that longing. I want to be a part. I want to be in the circle. A guy named Dave Busby years ago was a sickly child. I don't know if they did this in Canada, but back in the day, nobody does it anymore because everyone gets participation trophies. But back in the day... You go to P.E. and you're picking teams, right? Did they do that here? Canada may be too nice to do that, but we did that. They don't do it anymore. Everyone's a winner. That wasn't how it was. And so you, have, you pick your captains. The captains stand there. There's the lineup of kids. And they'll say, I'll take that one. I'll take that one. I'll take that one. 
and you're, you, you love it if you're athletic and you're one of the first ones picked, but you're dreading it if you're not. Because it gets down to the last couple of poor souls, and they're like, ah, fine, come on. We'll take Johnny. Imagine. This is, this is just that little picture is what it means to be outside the circle. Dave Busby was that little kid. He was always picked last. He was not an athlete, and he had uh, uh, heart conditions, lung issues, eventually died of cystic fibrosis. But he remembers the day that he was there with all the other kids, and his big, strong, older brother, first pick, said, I want Dave. It was one of the most glorious days of his life. Because everyone was like, what? You want Dave? And man, he was like, I have been chosen. It marked him. You're marked when you're chosen, and you're marked when you aren't. I'm just saying, maybe some of these things are starting to inform David's mindset, even becoming the king. That was an outcast to Father Saul. Saul said, you're like a son to me, and then hunted him down and tried to kill him. David's moving through this orphan reality, chosen by God, hated by man. And he can't participate in what his family's participating in. But he starts to, out of this mindset... He starts to see this dynamic with this guy named Obed-Edom, who's a Gittite. Gittites were residents of the Philistine city of Gath. Obed-Edom was a Philistine. He was a Gentile. He wasn't one of the chosen ones. But when they make, they make it as far as the area right where Obed-Edom is, Uzzah, an Israelite, is struck down by the presence. Now, you got to see, the presence of God, in this sense, is neutral, but this is not yet revelation we have. The presence of God can bring a curse or a blessing. The presence of God can strike down a Jew, but bless a Gentile. And that dynamic starts to scramble David's mind a little bit. They, they leave it there with Obed-Edom, and they're thinking, we've just heard about all the Philistines 70 years ago, the wreckage that God brought to the Philistines. Let's see what happens with Obed-Edom. God blesses Obed-Edom for three months. It's like crazy blessing. Everyone's talking about it. Obed-Edom's going nuts over here, right? The dude is blessed beyond measure, and David's saying, okay, wait a second. Help me put this together. The ark is the signature distinction of the people of God. And that's Israel according to the law of Moses. It should only be an Israelite. The Gentiles weren't allowed at all. There's other dynamics going, in, uh, going on here. 
So he judged the Philistine Gentiles, but blessed the Gittite Gentile. He blessed Israel, but judged the Jew, Uzzah. And we're starting to see that the blessing or the cursing is not determined by ethnicity, but what frames righteousness and what covenant, again, uh, referring to earlier this morning, the terms of the covenant that produce righteousness. And so the question, how is righteousness achieved? These are other things that David must be wrestling with because he's also seeing that the ark has been just fine where it is while the sacrifices continue. And what does that mean for the validity of that sacrificial system when the ark isn't even there, but all the animals are still being killed, the whole process is an empty ritualism. And all of these things only happened because the ark was stolen in the first place and it brought the judgment there, but then it starts to bless Obed-Edom. And for 70 years there's been this conundrum. The tabernacle of Moses is still going on autopilot, but it has no presence. And David is looking at all of this and he's pondering and he's asking and he sees a Gentile get chosen and blessed. And he's spent years singing to God among the sheep, learning the lessons of a shepherd with wayward sheep. And so he, he does some things that we say, okay, that makes sense. When he goes to get the ark the second time, he makes sure there's a lot of sacrifice and that the Levites carry the ark on poles. That's what you're supposed to do. But he doesn't follow all the way through with the old code. Instead, David reconnects to the essence of Abraham in a leap of revelation. In revelation and faith, he doesn't take it back to the mosaic system and the mosaic tent. He puts it in a new tent and he dares to say, I actually think everyone's supposed to have access. Now ponder the risk of that because he just saw Uzzah struck down. Ponder either David is crazy or he's putting some things together in a revelation upgrade. And he's combining that with faith. And God says, now we're getting back on track. Because there's a different dynamic to leave that thing open. People can see it. David stacks up 4,000 Levites to sing and worship 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. He finances it with billions of dollars. The equivalent of billions of dollars between that and the provision for the temple, David says, there's actually a new order, and everyone's included. And that order came out of some revelation he walked in, looking back over these series of events, probably from his own life, his own heart, and the reality of who's getting judged, and who's getting blessed, and how that just mixes and scrambles his theology, and he puts it in this tent, and he lets everyone see it, everyone have access, and that starts to prosper.
And the, the tabernacle of David becomes the new model for how God talks about what he wants. The tabernacle of David thrived under his kingship. And whenever Israel fell into apostasy, it wasn't the mosaic system that they would resurrect they would sing again the songs of David out of the tabernacle of David of the goodness of God. Every revival in, in Israel's history was a restoration of the, good, the revelation of the goodness of God and the songs of David that came out of that tabernacle. Amos 9-11 prophesied, because eventually it all fell into disrepair. Amos 9-11 prophesied, that one day God was going to raise up the fallen tabernacle of David again. Isaiah 56, 56, uh, 5 and 6 talked about the house of prayer for all nations. And this was a new paradigm. This was a new thing because it wasn't just the presence of God for Israel. It was the house of prayer for all nations. And that's what David was modeling, which is why Amos said, God's going to raise that thing back up again. And why in Acts 15, when the Gentiles are coming into the kingdom, and Peter says, he tells the apostles in Jerusalem, he says, you know, God showed me the sheet with the defiled animals. I said, no, I'm not going to eat. God said, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. And then God's spirit pours out on Gentiles. They're absolutely baffled by this because the presence of God is only for the Jews. It's locked up in their ritualistic system. It's the karma of Judaism. That's what gets us God's presence and favor. But David said something else. And God said, I'm going to raise that back up. And so James, when he hears about the Gentiles, he says, this is what Amos prophesied. The Gentiles coming is the access that everyone had in David's tent. And so what we're seeing with the Gentiles is the fallen house of David being raised back up. Everyone has access. Everyone has access. You have access. It's right there. You can walk right up and behold it. And even that is an inferior picture of the fact that you can behold and commune without having to go anywhere. The house of prayer for all nations is a different dynamic than the house of presence for one nation. And this is tying back in, if you'll uh, just turn to Ephesians 3. I'm going to wrap it up here. Some of you may not be well versed in the history of the, the two tabernacles. But if you are familiar with it, you may be inclined to think that David's tent replaced the tent of Moses. It didn't replace the tent of Moses. That thing still carried on. It still had all the ritual, all the sacrifice, all the tradition. It just didn't have the presence. What David's tent did was displace the tabernacle of law. 
because the tabernacle of law was given to one nation and they said yes in a covenant relationship with God based totally on performance that if they did it right enough, they would earn the blessing of God. And it says Moses still blinds the minds of the Jews today. They're still living under that paradigm. They've still got their tabernacle. They will one day have their eyes opened and they will see and receive and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They will recognize their own Jewish son, Jesus, as their Messiah, though they have denied him because Moses has blinded their eyes. But David's tent didn't succeed that. It displaced the requirements of that in a radical revelation of the grace that was God's intention to bring Gentiles into Abraham's blessing. And so in Ephesians 3, we see exactly that. Paul's giving his, his apostolic commission. He's saying, I, Paul, in Ephesians 3, on behalf of the Gentiles, if you've heard the grace of God that was given to me and the mystery that was made known to me by revelation, when you read this, you'll perceive my insight into the mystery of of Christ. What is the mystery of Christ? It wasn't made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. What is the mystery? It's that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ. Fellow heirs. To what or whom? In this context, he's saying all those Gentile nations that were forfeit at the Tower of Babel, the intention of God was always to raise up a Savior that would rescue them all. The intention of God was to establish a different code, a different understanding, a different relational paradigm, where out of fellowship with the Father, out of uh, imputed righteousness, out of doing, out of the place of rest, where He does for us what we cannot then we are fortified in a mission that regathers the nations. So that for the longest time, up until the time of Christ, there was only one nation that had access to God, but the Messiah who was to come from that nation said, I'm actually coming through you to get them all back. That's always been the purpose and it's why God set it up with the long odds. He said, you guys seem powerful. You've got, you know, Thor and Odin and the Jade Emperors and, and, you know, all that stuff. Go for it. Hey, you build your empires. Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece, Babylon, uh, uh, Medes, uh, uh, Egyptians, all of that. When I want to set my people free, I'm going to judge your gods, ten plagues. I'm going to set my people free. You can't stop me. You hold on to those Gentile nations all you want, but there is a blood that is coming. There's an emancipation that is coming. There is a rescue and a restoration that is coming, but I'm not going to do it alone. I'm going to raise up a people so wedded to my heart, so matched to my uh, uh, vision and understanding of the purpose of history that Psalm 2, Psalm 110, see, what David did was put the ark in that in, in David's tent, that was called Zion. And Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 talk about out of Zion, the rod goes forth. 
It's out of Zion that God stretches forth a rod to rule in the midst of his enemies. So who gets, who gets to be a part of Zion? Well, it's all the people that pull up to David's tent and say, that's our God. And there wasn't the restrictions. There wasn't the barriers. Anyone could get in on that because Obed-Edom taught David that. That's why David said, Obed-Edom, I want you to be a gatekeeper. <laughs> right? Obed-Edom was the first usher. Who do you want letting people in? The guy that shouldn't be in and got his socks blessed off. And he's like, guys, you all got to get in here because this is a good deal. Blessed beyond belief, outside the covenant, should have had no access. And instead, David says, I want that Gentile dude who just got his socks blessed off. He's going to be the head of the gatekeepers. He's going to tell everyone, what's a gatekeeper? In that context, they were the ones that could have prevented access. No, but Edom saying, you want in on this. You want in on this good story. A friend of mine had a dream. He's an incredibly accurate dreamer. Let me finish Ephesians 3, 6, then I'll tell the dream and we'll close. So fellow heirs, Gentiles are fellow heirs. In this context, it's fellow heirs to Abraham. Members of the same body. What body? The covenant body, partakers of the promise. What promise? We talked about it earlier. The promise made to Abraham that was a unilateral promise based on rest and faith that had no curse in it and Abraham only had to receive. And Gentiles that were for thousands of years from the time of Babel locked away from access to the goodness of that God and were actually slaves to gods that used them and abused them and, and demonized them and tormented them. These are the gods that uh, you see the trickle down of the ideologies of these gods and the terrible systems when you go around all across the earth you find these mass graves in ancient times because they were sacrificing their children to these gods killing one another all the bloodshed on the altars of supposed holiness all the systems by which man has strived to reach God and those false gods enslave and abuse and they were all locked out David realized God actually wants them back in and Jesus said as the Messiah I'm David's son he got it I'm ruling in his name what Jesus did was hang on a cross father forgive them all and the blood of Jesus wipes the record clean cancels the certificate of debt written in the law. The blood is put on the mercy seat covering the, the matters of the transgressions of the law and the presence of God is now moved out of that system and into David's tabernacle raised up pointing to the Gentile ecclesia of which everyone in this room is now a part which means you walk in Abraham's promise. What God said to Abraham and all the crazy good stuff that happened to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
You are meant to have that confidence. You have been grafted in. You have been made kin to the one God said, if anyone blesses you, I'm going to bless them. I'm not only going to bless you, there's going to be the ripple effect of blessing. It's blessing upon blessing. In other words, wherever you go and whatever you do, people around you are going to get impacted by the blessing that rests on you. The thing you live in is so effortless when you rest and receive and when you understand the story God has been telling for thousands of years, Paul came along and it was a foreign concept. It was another revelation upgrade. Paul's ministry wasn't received or understood for a while. He said, I've actually got a stewardship because the Jews won't receive the Messiah, which is why God is raising up David's tent and the gospel is going to go around the nations and the increase of his government shall never end because the Gentile nations, nation after nation, just keep saying, yes, we like that deal. Yes, we'll take that. Yes, salvation. Yes, yes, yes. The Gentile nations are happy to be delivered of the karmic code. They're happy to get in on that blessing. We're all Obed-Edom. It's like God touches us. Oh, that was good. I'll take more and I'll bring some with me. And God really likes that. He says, now be a gatekeeper. Gather others. A friend of mine had a dream, just an amazing dreamer, accurate dreamer. He saw two trains. And the, the, the perspective and the nature of the angle of the two trains made you think at, at first they were one train. And they both had the word mission on them. But as you changed your angle and got a little closer, one was like this supersonic powerhouse. And it actually said empowered mission. And inside that train, people were moving in revelation of righteousness, revelation of grace. They were fasting, they were praying, they were engaging culture. They were, they were uh, reformers and revolutionaries. Not striving, but out of a place of revelation and understanding. They had this empowered sense of mission. And this train was powerful and going places. It was filled with people who had purpose. And the train behind it that looked like it was really the same train was filled with people that actually had great revelation on grace. They had great revelation on some of the stuff we've been talking about here. But they were so satisfied with that. They were so, it was, it was actually when you got closer, the train was more like one of those little carnival trains at a zoo. And they were just in there high-fiving each other, you know, woo! And it was good revelation, it was real revelation. But as you got closer, the one train that was mission, uh, 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 empowered mission, that train, mission had a little separation between the two S's, and it was missing Zion. That train was missing that out of Zion, God wants to win it all. Out of Zion, there's a tabernacle of access and we've been deputized as Obed-Edoms. And, and the question of, of, of uh, uh, 
who gets to be chosen is everyone. But they have to know it. How will they know if someone doesn't tell them? How, how, how do we reform culture if we're just celebrating the great and glorious goodness of God to us? How do we live in the fullness of the revelation of the great grace we have been given and not lose sight that he's still on a mission to win it all? He's on a mission to empower you because there's nation after nation, tribe and tongue still yet waiting to be brought to that tent, to be shown that ark, to be baptized in love, to be invited and chosen for themselves. A gathering like this isn't so that we can high-five each other and take the little carnival tram of joy and happiness. It's so that we can lay our lives before the king who shed his blood to say, all those gods will be judged and all those people will be free and I want you to do it for me. That's what it's like to live with a grand sense of the liberation, the power of God in, in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I want it all. I want the full identity, the transformation, the revelation upgrade. But then I don't stay there. It compels me, just like the patterned son, to go where they're hurting the most, where they need him the most, where there's blind eyes to open and deaf ears and poverty and sexual trafficking and abortion and financial systems that are corrupt and education systems that are bankrupt and stealing the understanding of a boy and a girl. Life as simple as that. All the kingdoms of this earth, there's a day in Revelation where they become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ. And He shall reign forever. But that Christ, Psalm 110 says, stretches forth His rod out of Zion. And Zion is where the Gentiles come into David's tent, which means you are commissioned to this great purpose. Will you take this grace and drink it fully to the dregs to, 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 to the full maturity that you are meant to walk in so that you can be like Christ doing greater works. I don't want to just have the party. I want to shift history. I want to change nations. I want it to be said that a group of people in Belleville and in the surrounding areas got a glimpse of the glory of this God-man and were so enraptured with the possibility of his love for them that it drove them to give that love to others. And in the records of history, they would say they didn't miss Zion. Amen, amen. Let's do a little Q&A. And actually, you know what? Maybe we should take a three-minute break, five-minute break. Let's take a five-minute break. Go to the bathroom. Go, go buy some books because I don't want to take them home. <laughs> and uh, come back and, and uh, uh, Barry and Kevin and Tony and myself, we're just going to sit up here and field a few questions. 
No promises we can answer anything. But uh, come back, thanks. Five, six, seven. There we go. Thank you. And then we're. I think we're going to use. Um, we're going to use. Just okay.
Well, it, it, we can get it to
Okay, everybody, if we could just call this meeting back into order. Uh, Tony's got some snacks to eat that he's got to get to shortly. We haven't fed him enough. We yeah, come on up. Well, praise the Lord. Can we give, can we give Dean Briggs a, a thank you th this evening? Amen. So I don't know if he answered any, any questions for you tonight or just opened up a whole cascade of questions that you will have. Uh, but just as we're, as we're coming together and Pastor Kevin is being found somewhere, I don't know where, where he is. Oh, he's in, the, he's, in, he's in the throne room. Well, praise the Lord. Uh, let me just ask you guys, what's your takeaway? What's, what's your number one thing that you got? Come on, give me something. What's your takeaway from this weekend? Enough? Do nothing. Do nothing. Yeah. Be on the right train, okay? Yeah. Okay, somebody else, quickly. Grace, grace is receiving God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Come on. Do, why did we do this conference? Come on. What, what's your takeaway? God wins. Okay. It's a big family. God wants a big family. Yeah. God wants your rights, not your wrongs. Yeah, amen. Okay, give me, give me three more. Did you? What question? What's your takeaway? Yeah. What's your takeaway? Change is coming. Abraham's blessing is better than the law. Yeah. Okay, one more. Dan? Lower my resistance. Yeah, I guess you get that out of here. Yeah. Anyway. So. What the word rest meant. Amen. Amen. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be downloading, but I just wanted to get your juices flowing. You'll be getting... Just wanted your juices getting flowing so we can get some good questions here. And we're not afraid of anything. No. We're not afraid to hand the microphone to these two either. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Don't, don't, don't be shy. I mean, you've got to have some questions. I know my head is spinning. So, uh. together early. Um, just in a, a sentence summary, after I was in hospital with my cancer and I began to see a bigger picture of what um, the king and, and the seeds of what the kingdom was about, it was a fairly easy decision for me then to say um, I want to be fully a part of what this is all about. I 
back in that day, it meant a certain thing to me because of the boundaries of which I received that understanding. It meant denominational pastoring, leadership, whatever you want to call it, with after that the greater expansion come. But simply it was, in a sentence, really beginning to see it through that pearl of great price thing that the kingdom of heaven was like that and I saw that the pearl or the kingdom wasn't just my relationship with Jesus but also him and his whole purpose for my life, the full kingdom experience of that. So not just a salvation experience which is the foundation of it but the whole picture which was going to take Marilyn and I, um, after that happened I got married within four months and we went straight into Bible college uh, to do what we're doing and we've been now doing that for 50 years together. So it took us straight away into that new. I think there are uh, there are a number. Oh yeah, so maybe people didn't hear. We'll try to remember to do that. She asked if I talked about living stones. How does that fit with the uh, 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 the building that we gather in? How does that? How does that? How does basically how I'm interpreting it is how does church culture fit with being living stones? And um, I'm going to deflect to Kevin. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, I don't know. For me, uh, I think, uh, Dean, you hit on it really uh, this morning, I think it was, when you, you know, you said just in passing that, you know, that we're, we are the church, that the building's not the church. And, and, and I look at this building or any building that, churches, that church people, the church meets in, as a tool. I think this is, a, is just a functional tool. We have all kinds of tools that are at our disposal. And I see a building being one of those tools. And the problem is, is that sometimes we get worshiping the tool rather than the, 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 the creator who has given us those tools to be able to work with. And it's no different than money or, or than any other type of tool. And so that can happen. And you've seen man do that over the years. They've built great edifices to God uh, and, and, and with a, almost an idea that if I build this building, God will live in it again. Missing the fact that we are the living temples and we are the stones. Uh, and I think you said it well tonight. You said we are the individual temple, but we're also stones being put together into uh, a, a corporate temple as well. And both are legitimately uh, the church. The building's not the church, but the, it is a, it is a, a tool, and, uh, you know, there's decent ones. There's, there's all kinds of different ones. There's really lavish ones, whatever, but it's still, I think, I, that's why I look at it. It's just a tool, and that's how I, I, I 
work, uh, in my mind, what the significance of a building, if it is, if there any, is any significance or anything else, or structures or even programs that we run or discipleship groups and all the rest. They're all tools that we use as his church. I'll just, just one comment on that is, if we're family, then families have homes. It's, it's fine. But if we worship the home, then we're just into yeah. anything else. But the other thing I would just say, I believe in the new wineskin that's happening. We're going to see less and less church buildings and more and more kingdom centers in which churches operate out of. And that's something to unpackage. But we have properties around the world now that we just call Grace Center, the home of certain businesses, certain churches that meet in it and different things. So I think we're going to see more kingdom centers built and not so much labeled just the church and just to just to add on on to what Tony was just saying, I won't get into where the revelation came from, but the Lord told me years ago that it's not build it so they will come, it's build them so they can go. No. Martin? Yeah. If you look in Galatians, Paul's com- oh yeah, sorry. Uh, he he basically asked, "How do you get to pick if the covenant's there? What makes us think we can pick?" And I would say it's imperative to pick. I think actually I didn't touch on it as much tonight. You see David get away with stuff that he shouldn't have gotten away with, and I think it's because David had an understanding of this dynamic so that when he went in and, and ate the showbread, that shouldn't have been permitted. But he, he, he prospered through this because he was, I think, essentially saying, I'm not going to play according to those rules. I'm a son of Abraham. And um, uh, the Paul's commentary in Galatians says that the law was ordained uh, uh, by the intermediary of angels in conjunction with, it ran parallel to, but uh, it was not sequential in that sense. The Abrahamic covenant never ended. Moses was just added because of the hardness of their heart. And it was, it was added, it says, to tutor them to be ready to realize that way doesn't work. But unless you are, God in his mercy spelled out the nature of their stubbornness by saying, okay, you don't really recognize this doesn't work, so I'm going to fasten it to the performance system that will prove to you it doesn't work. And I'm going to define that for you, which is where we get confused is you read something like Psalm 119 and it extols the law of God verse after verse after verse. 
Well, the law of God is good. It enlightens the eyes. It, 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 it's like honey or the honeycomb. It's, it, its weight is beyond measure. Its value, all these things that are extolling the law of God. Well, that's, that's right and appropriate because the law properly frames, articulates, and defines the perfection of God. God doesn't find fault with the law in its accuracy of his character. He finds fault with the law in its inability to produce what it requires. The law requires a holiness that it does not empower anyone to produce. So he finds fault with the system that says, if I just do this, this, and this, I can be holy, when holiness is absolutely dependent on a relationship to a holy God. And so the law creates a system by which man assumes that if he just does the right things, he can achieve a holy outcome, but that's actually poison to the soul. So it defines holiness, but it doesn't empower holiness. And so it was introduced to make that point, to prove that point, so that when Christ came, mankind would have been tutored to the knowledge, I need a Savior. And so the last thought I'll add, and then I'll pass it off, the beautiful miracle of what God does is the Ten Commandments, you know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, all that stuff. Those Ten Commandments that are the perfect, uh, the simplest description of the perfection of a, a, a holy God, the character and virtue he effortlessly exhibits, in the law, they are commandments, but in Christ, they're promises. You won't kill. You won't steal. You won't murder. Because he has taken the full requirement of that upon himself, removed the penalty of its consequence, and by virtue of that new start, taken up residence inside you so that his holiness is lived out of you, and he's not going to break the law. So you won't. He was asking about son of David versus Abraham. He challenged the Jews constantly. You say you're the children of Abraham, but you won't act like him. He believes you won't. His reference to David was more about his messianic authority and kingship. The reference to Abraham is about the faith that puts us in favor with God. Unless your righteousness is far exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're not going to see the kingdom. Except that he put the fruit of righteousness in us. So the covenant that we have, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 5, the glory that Moses had compared to the glory that we have is like his was none at all because we because his was fading where fading away where ours remains. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ that purchased the price for us to have that much more excellent covenant. And so it's that living from the inside out, and but by the spirit you put the death, the deeds of the body. So how do you live out of that holiness? And, and, and what Eames was talking about is, with that, is what Jesus did to purchase for us and give us and bring us into the much more excellent covenant. This is really important, and, and these things, you get a taste of it here, it can slip away, it can get fuzzy, and it can get muddy fast. And so these things really take, uh, 
weeks and months and years to get set into where you really own the revelation and you walk in it rather than uh, some of the crazy stuff that can come out of this. But unless you go there, you can't get there. Right. So the, the, um, the issue isn't that the law doesn't exist. God didn't terminate the law. Jesus said, I came to fill every jot and, tot, jot and tittle. So it's not that the law has ceased to exist. It's that God is no longer relating to man for righteousness according to that law. He did for a time because it was necessary in the hardness of their heart. But the law unto righteousness is no longer how God is relating to humanity. He's relating through Christ, which brings full circle the promise of Abraham and surpasses it. I just wanted to add that the Abrahamic covenant, you know, uh, the Bible says, uh, Paul said Abraham believed God, right? And it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, Abraham walked with God by faith. Then the Bible says of David that he was a man after God's own heart. So uh, both of those those men in the covenant that they walked in, uh, you know, uh, both of them demonstrated that God's purpose, God's plan, always was relationship. Was always was relationship. And uh, and like he says, the 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 law was given because of the hardness of the hearts, because they wouldn't accept God's terms for relationship. So then he gave the law. I said, okay, well, if you think you can do it this way, then, then you go ahead if this is how you want to do it because that's the way all the other nations of the world are doing it. And they did the same thing when they asked for a king. Instead of relating to him through judges, they said, no, no, we want a king. We want to, just like all the other nations. And God said, well, if that's what you want, you can have it. But Jesus is going to have to come at some point, and he's the only one who could, could die and pay the price and fulfill all the righteous obligations of the law so that we could have a relationship again because that was always the, the goal. That was always the motivation. That's a great question. Um, his, did everyone hear? He's basically saying, how do you read Scripture in such a way that some of these things start to come out? And, um, yeah, that, that's good. Pray, pray, pray in the Spirit. Um, but I would say um, it's why God gives gifts to the body because uh, the Holy Spirit is more than capable of doing this in all of us, but not everyone has the aptitude or time to invest. And, uh, and I'm, I'm not trying to excuse or dismiss or say only rely on the teachers, but there really is a reason he gave gifts. And um, uh, I think if you pray in the Spirit, you read the story, you stop to ask why a lot, and then you listen to the answers... And then you try to, com, you know, compare notes. Well, the, that word was used here, and it's used here, so what could be the relationship? There's just a whole series of steps that everyone can improve on to start seeing it. But um, I think uh, in, in my case, uh, I'm also an author, 
And so I have a particular bent to see story where others see verses. And so um, I, don't, I don't know how to translate that well because it's a great question. I, 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 would like to, I would like to know how to answer it better. You can, yeah, Ecclesia arising. Um, pray in the Holy Spirit. Because when you pray in the Holy Spirit, there's 364 different things that happen. But one of the things is you begin to pray the revealed mysteries of God. And you begin, there's a bubbling up, a, a, a NABA flow that begins to up, uh, your, your, what was downloaded at your conception, which we all have the word of God, the complete word of God within us, his name is Jesus. Yeah, we just don't have partial, we have the word of God in us. And when you begin to pray in the Holy Spirit, you begin to be, uh, pray forth and upload into your mind the mysteries of God and that you'd be able to speak out your mouth and bring clarity. So praying the Holy Spirit really brings a lot of clarity. It's, it can't be said enough of. Um, one of the things when you're reading the Old Testament is, is go to the Old Testament looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, good theologian Kevin Connor from uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, he's written a book called The Foundations of Christian Theology, right? And, uh, you know, he has, he's really good at having little one-liners, and he, he says uh, of, the, of the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, he says uh, that um, the... Uh, the uh, new is in the old contained, and he said in the old and is in the new explained. And so if you read the Old Testament looking for the, the new covenant in the pages of the Old Testament, then you're studying the, the, the Old Testament looking for Jesus and the revelation of Jesus throughout it, and it's there. It's all over the place in it. And that, that helps us in our study of the Old, of the old Testament. Just have one just simple thought on that because these gentlemen have got it far more than me in that area. But the gospel is simple, it's not complicated. And if you're working with the Maasai people in Kenya and they've got one page out of a gospel somewhere, they're not <laughs> they can still understand the power and life of the new covenant because the Holy Ghost comes with great revelation and heart and reveals. So it's not just to satisfy the Western student mind. It's something that's simple enough that the simplest person on the planet can get because it's based out of his covenant and they see it in all kinds of different ways. And I think we've got to always approach these things from a global worldview, not just from a westernized, educated mindset Absolutely. to realize it's not just locked into our education field. It's something much bigger that Absolutely. comes through revelation. And when you see it lived out in the world in areas, the other thought I just had, not just so much on the study question, but just to say this, everything I see through all the covenants, as I've looked at it over the time, even what happened under the law was still an act of his grace. Do you understand? It was still an act of his grace. It wasn't an act just of his judgment or something. It worked through, so still revealing his heart all the way through. But I feel... Don't let yourself get so overcomplicated in it. There's some that are going to get a real student's heart to really look into it and reveal it and go, and especially those who've got a teaching gift in those kinds of areas. But realize the revelation of it is still simple enough for the most simple person on the earth to be able to get and understand. Absolutely. Um, say this after me. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
when you get done reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you should probably read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then when you get done reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then I suggest that you would read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Our template is Jesus. What Jesus did and what Jesus said is our perfect theology. So when you have the template of Jesus in your mind and you apply it to when you're reading the Old Testament, you'll begin to bring it through the cross, through the death, through the resurrection, through everything. And so there's some things that stop at the cross, some things that go through the cross, and some things that are transformed by the cross. But if we have the template of Jesus, and I don't know who said it, but, but it's really, really important, and you get it in the Gospels. Amen. And next question. So what, just sorry, one, one last quick thought. Uh, another is the Jews said of Scripture that every single word and passage had at least four meanings. At least. The literal, the suggestive, the parabolic, and the mysterious. And we have created an academic teaching mindset that, that very Greek, very Western, that's all about the data and it's very flat and technical and uh, takes the God-breathed and makes it clinical. And the Jews had a very different, it was a living, breathing, prophetic fireball of continual revelation. And just, just that thought, it could be literal. Am I reading something literal, figurative, parabolic, symbolic? Maybe it's all four. So God, in this one passage, what are you saying to me? And you just start to engage him out of the flatness and into the depth, and, and things start to, he'll talk to you about it. Sorry. I don't know how to phrase my question. I'm just starting to get an understanding of, of grace. I've been a Christian a long time, but I guess kind of, legalistic and striving um, but I've always had a heart for evangelism and I can't say I've been very successful at it and especially I guess the one I really want to reach is my sister because we, we both grew up in this church and all she can see is that you have to do this and you have to do this and so on so she you know I guess I haven't explained properly the relationship God wants with us. So how would this put a new shift on the way we do evangelism or witnessing? Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to me, to me uh, in my 50 years of traveling through and journey to where I am now, it's all just got so much simpler for me now. And I believe fatherhood is a new evangelism, very clearly. I believe just introducing people back to father's love. And Kara could give you a couple of illustrations, like I just mentioned yesterday, this girl in a hotel that we just met. I was in a restaurant talking to the waiter. He comes up to me, and uh, he was serving us really well. I just said the same phrase to him, you must make your daddy really proud. And he just looked and said, he walked out on me at, such and such and before we just was in a restaurant going he was just between two of us just weeping we prayed for the father's heart revelation he got up and he could see dad and then serve the table 
And I think evangelism and that kind of thing is going to take on a whole new dynamic because where Christianity for many years has been 10 things you don't do, modern day evangelism, I believe, not watering it down in any way because we've got to reveal sin in that, but it's introducing people back to a relationship with a father that he longs for and as we've heard taught so clear as long for from the beginning all the way through and that's the foundation of it. So my heart to you would be to say keep it simple and model your walk with fatherhood for your sister to see um, something because quite, quite likely the one maybe to confront things and bring it through is probably not you. It's probably someone else in the steps towards that for it. But your life and modeling will be something very precious. But don't take on the load that you've got to somehow reach it. But I think it's fatherhood and family. And uh, I think people are far more interested in what has you, not what you have. So when, when they can feel that you really have a relationship with the Lord and, and, and that the presence of evangelism and father evangelism, I think they're just going to, the more you fall in love with him, the more you have of him, the more they're going to want what you have. I totally believe in keeping it simple. I'm not, I have not been a person who contends. I don't know how to contend. So when you become aware that the mysteries and the secrets, you're getting a taste of it, do you contend and push and, or do you rest? Uh, you know, not to be a smart aleck, but the scripture says, contend to stay in his rest. You know, that, that's the main, the main thing we're actually told to contend for, is we're to contend to stay in rest. And, and most of our contending in life is to shut down all the voices that are trying to get us out of rest and to get us to take on the battle in our flesh or in our understanding or wisdom, our Greek mindset, all the rest of it. And, and you know, Hebrews tells us to, to, to contend to stay in rest and and as a doer so I'll, I'll be the first one to admit here I I'm 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 a, a, a doer before relationship mark mark hugs everybody he sees and then eventually I can get him to do some work around here but it's a, but he's relationship first right and then uh, you know but but I but I'm task oriented right so oh exactly and and uh, and and but I've had to I've had to learn to contend to, to function from rest rather than, than seeing that I'm going to be able to build the kingdom by just doing. I, you know, and then there's nothing wrong with doing, but doing has got to come out of rest. Let me give you an example. Uh, we had a conversation earlier today. Barry was asking me uh, out of my convictions and perspective on grace, imputed righteousness, rest, where does something like fasting fit in? Because fasting can feel like a striving Fasting can feel like works or performance, and many people that fast, they're trying to prove something to God, win something from God. Uh, I think fasting has a number of applications, uh, that, uh, things it produces uniquely and distinctly that are hard to get otherwise. Fasting brings a humility to the soul. Uh, but as an example, uh, 
Jesus in, in Matthew 17 comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. There's a demonized child. The disciples try to cast the demon out. And Jesus rebukes the demon and, and says, this kind doesn't come out except by prayer and fasting. And we all take that. Here, here's a new covenant, old covenant uh, applied to a verse. An old covenant mindset says, oh, I've got to fast. Now I've got to fast to have authority over demons. What Jesus did first was rebuke their unbelief. And then he saw it, said, this kind doesn't come out except by prayer. The kind of unbelief that renders us powerless, fasting is a posturing of the soul in utter dependence on God that reconnects us to faith and drives out unbelief. So it wasn't fast to have more power to cast out the demon. It was position your heart before the Lord in hunger and humility because the great enemy is unbelief. And when, we, when parts of our heart come alive again in that intimate fellowship that fasting can bring, now we're reconnected to that dynamic. And the authority was always there, but we didn't see it. And so... That to me is an example of you could strive to fast or you could fast to rest. Just real, just real quickly on that. I, for me, fasting has one purpose and that was what I opened up with on the first night. It, fasting is about lowering my resistance and it does that through all kinds of different ways that my spiritual eyes are open, my understanding is made clear, everything. All those things happen because what I'm, when I'm fasting, I am simply taking my life and, and uh, going before the Lord and using this as an opportunity to lower my resistance to what God wants to do. And that's why more power can flow through me because the resistance is lower. It's, just, it's not much more complicated than that. Just going to say, if you, if you fast to try to talk God, if you fast to try to talk God into doing something, you're going to end up just hungry with a headache. That's right. <laughs> I could just, yeah, that's something I'd love to talk for an hour on. Um, well, we'll come back tomorrow morning. No, I'm not going to talk on that tomorrow. <laughs> but um, where we're seeing it happen in transformation of culture, say, for instance, and I think that's what you're hinting at, where does it really get out? Some of the illustrations where we're seeing radical ch changes, some areas, um, right at the moment, probably our three biggest where I work with spiritual sons, areas of the biggest influences in the politics, education, and marketplace outside our church kingdom. They're probably the three strongest areas that we see. But we don't live in a seven mountain life. We, we live in, we talk at more 12 spheres of influence now. Because it was 40 years ago when the seven mountain revelation came and the world shifted since then, I think. So we separate finance and business, for instance, and raise up, you know, because investment money, we're just starting a bank at the moment, that kind of thing. Those things are a little bit different to just starting like a marketplace business. So 
we look at that, but some areas where we're seeing great transformation. Um, we, um, in education, we've seen some tremendous things happen across. It's 40 years ago, we planted our first school down in, Kingdom School down in South Africa. We can now trace where, we've, where that's grown to 5,000 schools across Africa and the multiplication. Now we're just starting another whole network of education and that more built even on a stronger kingdom base where we can identify very quickly in a young person's life the sphere of kingdom that they really, God is really forming into and educate them to their destiny rather than just a general education and try to find their destiny. Some of those things we're looking at in the polit political arena, we mainly do a lot of that in South Africa but mainly in Britain. There God just led us to really pray for politicians. We now have 1,200 people praying for politicians over a few months. Every politician from every party gets prayed for for us. The influence is going out great. Last year we even got a, a card from the Queen of England thanking us for praying for her and that kind of thing at Christmas. You know, So I could tell you all kinds of stories of where the influence is going. One of the biggest ones is transformation of a coloured township just outside uh, Cape Town in South Africa. There we're taking over the transforming the monetary system, the way shops can operate, to get business back out of Cape Town into the township. We're taking over, we own 23 of the 30 satellite towers now in the place. No one can go online unless they go on through the kingdom first through us. We have the most advanced AI um, call center in the world building that township now that's transforming and raising up individual business. So I could go on and on and tell you where the influence is now. If you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have told you the theory of it. Today I can tell you where it's working. And I think that's a difference, just in a summary. So just to encourage you in that, I believe apostolic network and life has to think big world vision in those areas. So I think he's, Rod's asking, you know, some people just, they never, they never heard kingdom maybe, but they die, they still go into eternity, and whereas there's other people that really embrace kingdom or whatever, where do you see those people who just make it into eternity fitting into things in, in, the, in, in the end, right? I mean, after, the, after, I think you're thinking after the second coming and, when the, and his kingdom set up, how does that all play? What's that look like? <laughs> this is a quick one before supper. Um, yeah, it depends how you view what your worldview is. I, I personally believe that death's only a hiccup in our journey, and so we're coming back to rule and reign with the king to see all the nations of the world and the kings of this world become the kings of our God. Death is not fully under his feet yet, but will be. He said that's the last one to put under his feet before he gives the kingdom complete, the earth complete, back to the Father in the Corinthian scripture there. Um, so I believe, uh, you know, people will, will be back here for fulfillment still. And um, so it depends what you believe. I don't know everybody who will be who in the zoo and all that kind of thing.
but I do believe that we are continually training for reigning and sons I work with, I'm not just training them and they're not helping me develop just for life this side of the grave but also life after it but still here on earth as the whole earth is transformed and the glory of God covers the whole earth. So, I mean, that's six hours of seminar, I'm just saying there in a, in a, in a sentence. So it depends what you, what, what you, how, how you see it. But I, I've had to go through sharing with the guys today some real transformation in my own heart over the last two or three years because there were some things that became roadblocks to me even in my own understanding till I saw a bigger picture and God's allowed me to see it. So I think it's a developing thing for all of us as we go. But I think, you know, you're training and you're in every way you're believing for something. If you, if you believe, if you don't believe in a victorious eschatology and something that develops, and there can be different views on, on that, but if it's not something that lasts, it's a very difficult thing to work with a young person to raise up a kingdom business if you've got a theology, the devil's going to get it in the end, <laughs> right? Where we believe God's got it and he's going to use it continually. Down where I live in Virginia, uh, some people were looking around, and maybe this is just a place to end this for me, but was looking around Pat Robertson's 700 Club campus, you know. To, uh, my daughter and son-in-law graduated their law degrees there. And, um, but you walk around there, it's a very regal kind of place in Virginia Beach there. And someone was going round through there many years ago that we knew, and the guide was just showing them round, and um, just simply said, "Why did Reverend Robertson build this place so strong and regal and powerful?" And the guide never missed a beat. He just said, "Because Jesus will need it when he returns." <laughs> never missed it. He's going to have headquarters all over the world. Yeah. So if I'm working with a guy in finance right now who's got a finance company or a banking or something, we're not just thinking about now. We're thinking in the full establishment of the kingdom on earth, maybe somewhere there he's going to be heading up the kingdom's minister of finance in Iraq or somewhere. As the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. So you've got to think much bigger than a gospel train just taking us to heaven. And in that, it, you know, because we know that, that you know, over the, over the years. So I think that's a fun bit, but that's only enough to make you hate me or love me. You know? <laughs> Good night. Have fun. Thank you. All right. Tomorrow morning, uh, 10 o'clock. Uh, and when we say 10, we actually start about three or four minutes after 10, not 20 after 10. So, uh, so if you're visiting, it won't be as, as lax as the schedule has been here. So uh, we were, we'll be here at 10 o'clock tomorrow. And uh, we trust that uh, you are ready to come and join us and have a great time. God bless you, uh, and we'll get those uh, messages up as soon as possible.